Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about classical music and wine, hosted by myself, Sommelier Jill Mott, and radio host Emily Reese. Today we're talking about California, all the love for California music and wine. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution for as little as $1 per month or as much as you can afford on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash scoresandpours. There you'll also find a playlist, a wine list, and of course you'll find a link to our merch. Hello, Jill Mott. Good day, Emily Reese. How's it going? I'm in California sunshine, so yes. I am I am very happy. Likewise. And I just uh, visited a really cool winery and was so excited to see what they're up to and taste taste their awesome new new release. Some things I can't get at home. And you got to come. You'd never been to a like a natural winery before, no. so that was fun to have you and your contribution. It was great. It was super fun, yeah. It's been really nice out here in California, and I got to connect with a really good friend of mine who's a composer, and so I'm going to tell you a little bit about him today. Fantastic. From my angle, I'm going to talk about my love for California and the heartbreak that's happening right now. Just update people about just talking a little bit about the wildfires. I know everyone knows it's going on and that it goes on. This is the season for wildfires in autumn in California, late summer, early autumn. Um, but I just wanted to give some facts so people can realize like, actually how grave uh, it, it, the situation can get for some wineries. But of course I want to talk about some of the crazy awesome stuff that's going on in California uh, on a positive note, some awesome producers uh, that are doing some cool work. And also wineries that are making a natural effort, but they their wines are a little bit more classic in case you don't want skin-fermented Marsan, say. <laughs> Marsan being the grape. And uh, just note, we are recording outside, so there's going to be a lot of nature sounds and maybe power tools, planes, dogs. Just deal with it, people. You'll love it. Freaking dogs. Dogs. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> we had like 18 takes at the beginning because of dogs. Because of dogs. Some, whatever. Yeah. So we'll hear, we'll definitely hear some dogs throughout this whole thing. So let me tell you about my friend Gary Scheiman. Gary, first of all, before I even get to Gary, one of the obviously unique things about California is its connection to um, entertainment, media, uh, film, television, video games. Um, one of my other passions is the music that's in video games. I do a podcast about that separately without Jill Mott. It's called Level. It's called Level. And uh, so I'm pretty in tune with what's going on in terms of music in video game world. And, and its connection to California is deep, as, as deep as it is to Japan. It's, it's uh, uh, a lot of active video game composers, whether they're working actually for a video game developer or whether they're working independently as an independent contractor type. A lot of those folks live out here on the West Coast, particularly in California, as does Gary. So I'll tell you a little bit about Gary uh, coming up. He's done television, films, and games uh, for decades now and has written some of my favorite music to come out of media ever. So, yeah. Super cool. Yeah. Well, I guess I always like to start with... Um 
like noises like that are also going to happen, which I don't even know what that was. A human, obviously. But if someone says, okay, Jill, I got some good news and I got some bad news. What do you want to hear first? I always want to hear the bad news first, yeah. right? My glass is half full, so I want to end on good, good, happy notes. So I'll, I'll talk first about um, the forest fires that are happening in, in California. If you look at various sources online, it'll tell you you know, how many fires, the acreage that has been destroyed, you know, where they were in and around California. And what's crazy is in recent history, 2017 and 2018 were intense, like a million plus acres were burned. And in this, we are going to get to vineyards too. Um, but in 2020, it was the largest, it's been the largest wildfire season in modern history in California. So as of now, 4.5 million acres have been burned. So it seems like it's about three times the normal destruction that's happened. And one that specifically relates to to wine or correlates to wine is one called the Glass Fire. The Glass Fire just alone has um, ravaged about 67,000 acres and devastated specifically about 30 wineries in Northern California have been affected. And you know, I'll, I'll talk a, a little bit more about some figures, but um, if you go online, especially like the New York Times, there's been a lot of terrible imagery, but good photography that has documented this. And the New York Times has a specifically, for me, a really unsettling image. It's the vines at Chateau Boswell, and it just shows a picture of a vineyard from, you know, knee height, and it's just, in, it's black. Mm-hmm. It's just, and imagining how they're going to even remotely salvage that. I mean, they can't because it would produce a lot of smoke taint, meaning you would taste the wine and it would taste like ashy or smoky. So just, you know, page through, familiarize yourself because a lot of times when people drink wine, you know, they just, they pay for their wine and they, they drink it and it's, you know, they don't even think about the ins and outs of like harvest problems. And then you add the pandemic and you add wildfires onto it, and it's like this is such an emotional time for a lot of lot of folks um, in the wine industry, but especially here in, in California. Mm-hmm. Do you know how the glass fire started? Was that a lightning fire? What, do I know? don't. Okay. I yeah. don't. A lot of them are natural due to just high temperatures mm-hmm. and, and brush, mm-hmm. but I don't know if it was like a lightning storm yeah. specifically. On a more maybe peppy note, Yeah. Uh, do you want to tell us about some music? Yeah, so... One of the things that I love about Gary, speaking again of my friend Gary Scheiman, and and this is a little different today because we are going to hear music that wasn't originally composed for the stage. We're going to hear music that was written for games and film. And uh, again, just being such a huge part of the industry here in California. Mm -hmm. And with Gary, Gary is classically trained and he studied composition at USC in the 70s and graduated in the 70s. And um, started writing for TV right out of the gate. He did some uh, work with Magnum P.I. and the A-Team. Yes. Some other TV shows like that. I pity the fool. And in the 90s, he did do some really early video game composition. But in the 90s, video games, as you can imagine, were really rudimentary, as was the audio that was able to be in them. And so Gary wasn't particularly enamored by the industry at the time. And so he took about a decade off. And then in the um, uh, in 2005, he managed to to get a job with a game called Destroy All Humans, which was a comedy game about aliens coming to 
planet Earth in the 50s. Wow. Reminiscent of sci-fi movies in the 1950s. Yep. Just happens that one of Gary Scheiman's favorite composers is, well, Gustav Mahler, first of all, is his favorite composer. Cool. But in terms of in media, Gary's favorite composer is a man who was named Bernard Herrmann. Bernard Herrmann wrote the music for many Alfred Hitchcock films. He's well known for that collaboration. He also worked a lot with Orson Welles. Uh, his first, Bernard Herrmann's first film was Citizen Kane. Wow. Um, Bernard Herrmann also scored Psycho, North by Northwest, Vertigo. All the things that gave me bad dreams. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I got you. Um, but he also did a project called The Day the Earth Stood Still is a very famous sci-fi score from the 50s and Gary was able to emulate that almost to a T because Bernard he was such a fan of Bernard Herrmann and that's what got Gary his his next video game gig in 2005 destroy all humans so let's listen to a little bit of the Bernard Herrmann score from uh, the day the earth stood still so you can hear how that compares to what Gary wrote in 2005 for destroy all humans okay so here's the day the earth stood still Nightmare Before Christmas or like Tim Burton something um, Edward Scissorhands yep and that film composer who works on those projects is a man named Danny Elfman and Danny Elfman 100% influenced by Bernard Herrmann no doubt oh wow I mean Bernard Herrmann really kind of was he 100% was one of the most influential film composers at the advent of film, right? Mm-hmm. In the in the mid uh, 20th century, you know, along with you know others like Elmer Bernstein or, or John Barry. Well, John Barry would have come later than um, Bernard Herrmann, but uh, composers like that <clears throat> very influential to to folks like Danny Elfman, who does the Tim Burton films and things. Can I can I listen to a little more? Because I wondered yep. I wanted to ask you a question about them. Yeah. this instance is it like you know some of the various pieces that we've listened to on scores and pours where you have to have knowledge of the film or enjoy the film or interested in the film or his work or could people just like listen to this or other composition compositions from bernard and be like just chilling with it there are uh, since bernard herman's film music was and of course he he wasn't born here he was born in, Bernard Herman was born in in New York and ended up out here in California and died here in LA well we're not in LA but whatever um, and Bernard Herman uh, because of the popularity of his music there are a lot of suites of his music and we've talked about that that composers did that with ballet mm-hmm. and they did that with even opera. Um, A lot of stage works like that, composers would extract their music into orchestral suites that could be just played by an orchestra. And so there's a lot of 
that out there. You know, Bernard Herrmann, sweet from Psycho, sweet from Vertigo, sweet from, you know what I mean? And so you can enjoy his music from that perspective. But I think, as is the case with a lot of music from media, the media enhances its context. Um, You know, you can listen to uh, uh, the difference in a film like you know, Terms of Endearment, for instance, Yeah. listen to that soundtrack and, and you'll get a vibe. If you don't know that that's from Terms of Endearment, you can say, oh, this music is thoughtful and pleasant and sunshiny day outside and yeah, friends having coffee. Yeah, doesn't creep me out. Right, but then you can hear this out of context and be like, oh, this is probably for something kind of sci-fi-y. This yeah. sounds like sci-fi from the 50s or something, you yeah. know? And then that's... So, yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no, you totally answered my so, question. So, and I uh, just on that thread to continue that thread because that was Bernard Herrmann, I'd love to just play a little bit of Gary Scheiman's music that Please. he did for that game in 2005. Please. And then I'm going to say because I never get to say it, we're in California, so let's drink. Yes. <laughs> First thing I thought of was um, like how it, how it sounded like Garfield's Halloween, where it's like, <laughs> like I'm going to you know going to trick or treat when I was ten, and someone had like something in their yard that made that noise when I passed by. Yeah, are all of those the, both of the things we heard? I know they were composed at very different times. Yes. Um, are they all actual instruments? Yeah. Like like the even the more modern one is this all produced on a soundboard? With samples like we talked about, or these actual, wow, that's cool. In 2005, when Destroy All Humans came out, Gary, because I think, because of how good his music was when they heard his demo, they're like, we're going to give you the budget for an orchestra. Wow. Yep. And so in 2005, that was less common than it is now. Now, if we weren't in pandemic times, there'd be way more orchestral recording happening this year than there is. But by now, compared to 2005, it's it's pretty common. It, I mean, it's it's not uncommon. Let me put it that way. Okay. For, especially for a bigger budget game, for composers to have the budget to do a live orchestra. This has to be a world that so many people don't know about. Oh like, yeah. It, like like anything in life, if you don't do it, you don't know about it. But like, yeah. If you could love classical music, like to the umpteenth degree. I know a, a colleague of mine that distributes wine who loves classical music with his wife and they enjoy the podcast. And I just think they must not have a clue about who these people are. Oh, and yeah, like no. they're amazing. Yeah. You know, they're just what they're capable of doing, how they're capable of mm-hmm. like making you feel a certain way, even though you may not be familiar with said video game. Um, it's awesome. Yeah. Should we, cause we're in California, should we drink? Yeah. Okay. Are we going to drink this one? This first wine we're going to taste uh, was given to us by uh, the winery and the winemakers that we visited. Jay Bricks, they're called. They're in Escondido, California, which is about 30 minutes or so 
east of the Pacific Ocean and close to San, well, in San Diego County and north of Encinitas, about you know 20 northeast of Encinitas, about 25 minutes. And tasting with them and just you know they were doing punch downs, they were busy, they were in the process of a move, so I was very grateful that they could see us. We tasted through some things and they said, "Take this with you. We only make 22 cases." Amazing. And I was just like, "What?" This is their Electric Mayhem. 2019 from the Jurassic Park Vineyard, Chenin Blanc, Petnat. Now, what makes this so great is A, there are no additions in this wine at all. No sulfur added, nothing added, nothing taken away. And then because Jurassic Park Vineyard is sandy soils, there's not a lot of space for that phylloxera, that louse that ravaged vineyards the world over to really move. It's very compact soil. So in that way, you've got, these are, I think they're planted in the 70s. You've got amazing, own-rooted Chenin Blanc grapes. Keep going. What do you think of the smell? It smells like I want to bathe in it. Oh, it smells so good. It smells like minerals. And just like the faintest amount of like a, like an apple or a stone apple. fruit, but like just, yeah. that's almost like unripe, you know? Yeah. It's just barely ripe for the eating. Oh. Acid, electric, electric. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh man! And they, um, Jay Bricks, they ferment everything. Most things will ferment in one-ton picking bins, and then some things ferment in oak. Everything is aged for a small amount of time in oak, and this just has like so much finesse. It is electric mayhem in my mouth. Um, <laughs> you know, medium-bodied. It is like. Light to medium bodied, I'd say definitely dry. The bubbles are so effervescent and beautiful and bright, and I just, I love it. Mm. This is delicious, and I was so just bowled over that they gave us a bottle of that mm-hmm. after they're like, we only make 20 or 22 cases. No, you're not getting that in Minneapolis. They're like, here, have a bottle. I was like, I wanted to hug them so bad, and can't because of COVID, and they might not have wanted me to regardless, but it just... Hashtag wine, hashtag industry. Yes, I know. To, to scores and pours. To scores and pours, and to Emily and Jody Bricks Toe for having us. What did you think of your first wine, wine or like natural wine visit? I know they, obviously their vineyards are all over. This is from the Santa Inez Valley, which is just kind of south southeast of Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. Um, and we obviously didn't get to go to Jurassic Park Vineyard, yeah. um, but how did you how did you feel being in there, meeting them, chatting? What'd you learn? I loved it. I have heard you, Jill, talk about punching down the cap of wine. I've heard you talk about that a thousand times, and to see it was really cool because they just have. I mean. I'm still just amazed that it just sits there. It just sits there. And it's like in this one ton cube and there's plastic covering it. They pull the plastic off and it's just full of grapes. Mm-hmm. Just full, just sitting there. And so he takes so Jody takes this big stick with a kind of shove, flat shovel end and just called a pig, like a pigeage pole or something punched down tool. Okay. Yeah, it's just this big pole. Stainless steel. And he just pushes it down and basically just stirs it. And it was far enough along in the process that it seemed pretty easy for him to stir. But I know he was mentioning how difficult it is in the early, when when it's when there's not much juice in there, right? Because they just dump the grapes in there. Well, what, what ends up happening is the cap, there's a lot of juice, but um, the cap 
is less or more saturated and is thicker or thinner depending on just how long it has been fermenting. Some of it falls to the bottom. Yeah. Um, so when you're, and just to kind of reiterate and expand a little bit upon what she's talking about, cap management is something that if you don't punch your grape skins down that are floating atop your wine, you the cap it's called will dry out. Those skins will dry out, and you'll get the minute. Like the smallest amount of air will hit the juice or the wine and it'll oxidize. You can also, if you have any volatile acidity, we've talked about that on the show, or like off aromas, if you stir it, those can go away. Think of kind of like, yeah, if you wake up and you might have woken up in a bad mood and you just get a little fresh air and you feel better. It's like giving fresh air for wine. Um, there's a lot of different reasons why that happens. You can extract more flavor and more color the more you macerate and, and, and do pigeage is what that's called when you manually punch down. It can be called remontage if you're using tools and pumps and hoses. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, yeah, just to kind of expand upon what you were just said. Yeah, I just, I just thought it was really neat. It was also obviously the first time I've ever tasted right out of a barrel um, that was not even, it's like 40 some days away from being ready. And I'd never tasted wine, quote unquote, at that stage. And it, it literally well, it was, was still juice. Like juice. It was still yeah. juice, yeah. Just juice. It was it probably su- sweet. My guess is that probably with 40 days left to ferment, that thing probably had five, 4% alcohol, 5% alcohol. So yeah. it was like in a perfect, and to me, that's like a really really pretty place to be because not a lot of people get that opportunity to yeah. taste like it's still juice yeah and it's it is wine at that point you know it's yep. just this really interesting part yeah. of, and um, it was and super cloudy too like very cloudy which was and of course it hasn't been whatever it was it was such a great experience and I was just so grateful for their kindness and generosity and um you know Jill and Emily were talking about things, and as Jody was punching stuff down, he was just letting me smell what it smells like, which, you know, doesn't smell like wine. kind of does, but it, It you smells know. like fermentation. Like, it smells yeah. like something is actively... Yeah. yeah. It was and, really cool. And what was cool is he was punching down a, a lot of different reds, and then he punched down some Riesling. And it was a reason that this year, every year, it's something, you know, they get some botrytis, but this year specifically, because of what was happening in the vineyard, there were, there were and the slope and the, the way, the aspect of the, the vineyard, that they ended up getting, I think it was Kick On Ranch Vineyard, that they ended up with about 30% botrytis. So he picked a berry that was botrytis and that wasn't botrytis and let Emily taste them and let me taste them. And it was funny, Emily just like shot them both in her mouth. I didn't know that's what he was doing. I didn't know he was like, here's one that's this. and Because I don't even know what botrytis is. Yeah, and botrytis is like a mold. It, there, there are bad botrytis uh, strands, but botrytis scenaria is a noble rot, they call it, that can actually make grapes have this essence of like honey and lavender and like be a little bit more kind of herbaceous and so yeah it was kind of, it was great because he literally like gave us these little berries and we were tasting them it was just it was really really fun so i appreciate that um yeah you want to get back to music and then i can get back yeah. to wildfires yeah so so now that i've kind of <coughs> perhaps poorly explained but explained a, a connection uh between bernard herman and, and gary Scheiman. in fact gary has talked before i've interviewed gary so many times and Gary has has talked before about how it was Bernard Herrmann and he was a boy listening to these movies and knew that he that's what he wanted to do he's like I want to make music for that and so that's how Gary ended up doing what he did and um, after Gary 
did the the music for the Destroy All Humans series of games, uh, probably the next most famous or perhaps the most famous project that Gary has worked on is a, a series of games called uh, Bioshock. Um, there have been three Bioshock games. The first one came out in 2007, the second one came out in 2010, and the third game, which is called Bioshock Infinite, came out in 2013. Now, Bioshock Infinite from 2013 is... Uh, consistently atop my uh, top three favorite video game scores and in Bioshock Infinite I think it's some of the most raw and well thought out music to exist in in video games now one of my favorite things about music in video games is gamers are so open-minded when it comes to the style of music you can be so atonal off-the-wall weird in video games and the gamers just eat that shit up it's fantastic it's so the opposite in the concert world right yeah like people want to hear beethoven 5 they want to hear sibelius 2 yeah you know it's it's not like anything goes and and really anything goes in the video game world and and people like gary value that highly and take advantage of that in the best way possible mm-hmm. so let's go ahead and listen to uh some of the music from bioshock infinite gosh, it's like bees, and then all of a sudden I'm spreading honey on my toast. <laughs> so You can keep going, though, if you want. Bioshock just... Infinite takes place in the sky. The previous two Bioshock games took place under the water, and they were utopian societies that upper-class, um, highly educated people were going <clears throat> to live forever and have a perfect society under the sea. So the first two games under the sea... The third game, Bioshock Infinite, takes place in the sky in early America, in like the 1920s or something like that. And so Gary was looking to blend aspects of American classical music, which wasn't really a huge thing in the 1920s. It was still very an early, early thing. We were still very much copying, quote-unquote, the Germanic European model of classical music. And so Gary is trying to, from a really super educated place, meld these things together into a a video game score. And it's Hmm. super cool. So that's why you hear elements in all the Bioshock games blended from pop culture, you know, songs, maybe some Django Reinhardt, things like that, but then combined with, with music. Yet the slight bit of atonal that's happening makes it eerie or mm-hmm. makes it unsettled. Yeah, yeah. And that's how you're supposed to be because okay. you, this is the this is the early moments of the game. Okay. That you're hearing this, and so you're you know as a player if you're playing Bioshock that things aren't going to be quite right. That utopia isn't utopia. <laughs> it's more like dystopia. Okay. And you're not sure how yet. And oh, so okay. it is this, but it's again 
just like the first two games set under the ocean, with this game being in the sky, it's, it's breathtakingly beautiful, yeah. right? And so Gary wants to pay tribute to all of that with music, and, and he does. Wow. It's really incredible. Was that a glockenspiel or something? Like, are we hearing... No, that was a celesta. Or celesta, so... Yep. And was it an actual celesta? Like... You know, probably not okay. in that case. Probably not. The string players are all real. For Bioshock Infinite, Gary, I think he only hired six or eight string players. Okay. And any time he wanted more sound, he would just overdub them. They'd just re-record themselves to make themselves sound like 12 string players or 24 oh. string players or something like that. So, um, but they're, in this case, it was a very small ensemble, which for the previous Bioshock games, Gary was using full orchestra. What's going on in that guy's head when he goes to bed? Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, awesome. Gary's a genius. I love that man. <clears throat> yeah. So, yeah, let's go on. We'll listen to more Bioshock here in a bit. I'd love that. Um, well, just to kind of talk about the glass fire and to bring that home to wineries, um, I mentioned before that, you know, some 30 wineries in Northern California have been affected, 67,000 acres, glass fire, Fairwinds Estate Vineyard, which honestly I've only ever had that like one or two times, and I know that they're a bigger winery. But they have historical importance here in Napa Valley because they were like the fourth, I think, fourth winery to be established in Napa, pre-prohibition, I think. And they had over 40,000 square feet were destroyed. Oh, man. Production site, their tasting room. And a lot of these places that are in Napa and Sonoma have tasting rooms, and that's where they sell a lot of their wine, right? And so they're not shipping all over the country. There's a winery in Calistoga that has 10,000 cases of their wine were destroyed. So if we think of 10,000 cases, that's definitely... Is that 100,000 bottles of wine? It's 120,000 bottles, because there are usually 12 bottles in a case. And 11,000 square feet of their, their winery was production space was destroyed. Now, they are definitely a medium to large facility, so that wasn't their entire production, but they lost, I mean, still, 10,000 cases. That's insane. And what's incredible is a lot of the winemakers and, you know, CEOs or, you know, vignerons have been interviewed, and what's incredible is they're like, you know, thankfully we haven't lost anybody. Yeah. Thankfully, you know, the fires are becoming more and more contained with each passing day. Like, the optimism that they have, even though they're in the midst of devastation, is pretty, and their resilience is to be admired. There's a um, really popular, well, I don't know how popular, because it costs like, a, you'd have to sell part of your liver to yeah. be able to go. Maybe a kidney is more appropriate. Meadowwood Resort, it's this luxury resort um, in Napa. A friend of mine knows Meadowbrook well from having done a lot of events there. It's just a spectacular place if you can afford it. And Meadowwood was destroyed. So just to keep in mind that right now it's an amazing and really sad time here. But, but that said, there's a lot going on. Producers are still making wine. We obviously tasted, thankfully, Jody and Emily, you know, their their wine. Nothing was t smoke tainted or destroyed. You know, they're, they're here a little bit further south um, than the hectic what's going on up north. Um, but when you drink the 2020 vintage, and if the wine tastes good, you know, the wine might even be a little more expensive because they're trying to make up for lost ground. Maybe not. I, I'm not sure what they're going to do there. But just know when you see 2020 on a label of California wine and Oregon wine to some extent, they had some wildfires in Oregon, oh, yeah. that that came with a lot of hardship and strife. And if the wine, ta A, you're able to even buy some, 
B, it tastes delicious. Raise a glass to the people that are all the firefighters. Yeah, my glass is empty, so hold up. Cheers to the firefighters, to the winemakers, to the families, and the people of Northern California. Cheers. You want to taste what I have in my glass? I'm not sure. <laughs> it's weird. So this bottle I opened days ago, and it, it had what we like to call in the business, mouse but not mouse. It like tasted mousy, but it tasted like not mousy. It was like corn chippy and mouse is a fault and it happens on the finish and it happens as a result of the pH being too high in wine, meaning, you know, low acidity. And something told me to save this. Something, and a lot of times if I have a mousy wine, I'll save it, sometimes I dump it, some, whatever. I've put this in the freezer three different times. I've taken it out and now I let it thaw out. And I don't think it's mousy. I, I think th it's so mousy. See, I think there's something, <laughs> it's something, but I don't think, I don't think it's like the mouse that we all taste that like is corn chippy and almondy and just like wrecks. It certainly is for me on the retro nasal. I get almonds and everything. Yeah. God, man. I totally don't. So this is, um, I, I, I specifically poured this for today because it's what is kind of really hip right now in California and it's really rare and weird. It's a producer called Canaan Wine Company. Um, they're out of Santa Rosa and this is their 2019 Love Ranch Vineyard. So from the Madera IV, or AVA, American Viticultural Area. And Madera is in the San Joaquin Valley. So we're south of the Sierra foothills and we're one of the, we're very, very close to Fresno for those of you who know Central California. This is Marsan, 100% which is a Rhone varietal, a white varietal from the Rhone Valley. And it's got some time on the skins. It's got some time in old oak barrels. It's only 10.5% alcohol. Usually Marsan is like big and bombastic and 14% plus, 13% plus. So to have it at that low of alcohol is really nice and pleasant. Here, there's nothing added to this wine, no sulfur at all. Love Ranch Vineyard is granitic schist soil, so it kind of does have this, like, with the combination of that and the skin contact, really kind of chunky, even though it's light. It's got, yeah, it's just a weird wine. But this is hot shit right now in California. Like, people love this stuff. It's less than 25 bucks, and I don't know. Is this undrinkable for you? It is. Yes, more for me. No, I'm just yeah. kidding. I couldn't probably do too much of this. Yeah. Yeah, so it I mean, smells I like it smells like apricots and it smells like like papaya kind of, just like some some tropical fruits, which is very common actually for Marsan. Yeah, I don't know. I find it very weird. It's totally weird. I would be not happy if I opened that when I got home. <laughs> mm. Personally, I would give it to you. I would call up Jillmont and say, "Hey, I have a mouse not mouse wine for you." And you'd be super excited, and I would too, because I would be able well, to not drink it. And here the thing is, is like I don't, I don't want to go on the mouse train too long because I think that it gets really obnoxious and people are sick of hearing it. But like, to me, mousiness when you have a, a really mousy wine, you you don't want to drink it, and you it kind of overpowers your whole palate. And and even in, in small amounts, it is like ugh, gross. Mm -hmm. If you have the faintest amount and you're eating, a lot of times that can get kind of covered up by yeah. fat and garlic and stuff, but you start to learn after tasting, honestly, I've tasted, it has to be like thousands of mousy wines. You start to learn like which ones are mousy and gonna get worse, which ones are mousy and gonna go away. So those sometimes I'll save and see, and sometimes they don't. It's like a really weird compound. Mm -hmm. And to me, this is something that I, I, I get what you mean, 
but then it goes away on the finish, and I'm it does. I'm left with like this, like dried apricot, sulfur dry apricot, mm-hmm. something. Yeah, and like maybe cashews of some sort, like something kind of yeah. buttery because of the oak. But then that what is mouse mouse? I don't that like that would make me be like, whoa, let's open something stay. else. Yeah. yeah, isn't here for me. The thing, this is what this wine is like for me. It's like if you're at a friend's house and they just like make you a sandwich and they don't ask you what you want on the sandwich and they put a bunch of stuff on there you don't like but you (laughs) don't want to be rude and you don't pick it off so you eat it anyway that's what this wine is this wine is like a good sandwich with a bunch of shit in it i don't like interesting yeah so i love that analogy you're you're totally right that it goes away on the finish it does It, it immediately after i drink it and i breathe out i get almonds like crazy I but it does go away mm-hmm. after but, like seconds I mean, yeah yeah it's like please don't put tomato on my sandwich thank you very much <laughs> so crazy Emily doesn't like tomatoes which no. is like a, a situation for both of us and yeah like right now I'm, right now I'm tasting it and I, like what's crazy about this wine is like yes we all know you taste wine and your palate gets used to flavors yeah. So then you start to discount those flavors. Yeah. But you're right. Like, my first taste, I was like, no. And then I was like, yes. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, no. And wines like this fascinate me because you just don't know what's mm-hmm. wrong with it or, yeah. or right with it. I mean, it definitely I mean, lingers for me. It goes away, but not right away. You know, I, mean, I had right a drink now it, maybe 60 seconds ago, and I still am like, Bleh. Yeah, and I had a drink a little bit longer than that, maybe 90 seconds ago, and I, I do still taste it. So, yeah, yeah I... This one will be one of those that just sits on... It'll be, like, with me the entire car ride. I have two weeks ahead of me to do vineyard visits and stuff, and this will be... It's it's half to three-quarters full right now. This will be a quarter full in a week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to keep trying it. Yeah. All right. So, Gary Scheiman's most current video game project is a game that I've neither played nor heard the whole soundtrack. Um... But it's probably the first soundtrack for a game to be what's called expressionist music. Wow. Expressionist music. Do you remember the episode where we talked about 12-tone music? Yeah. And we talked about a man named Arnold Schoenberg. Of course. Arnold Schoenberg invented, somewhat questionably, the 12-tone technique of composition. Yep. Before he did that, so even earlier in the 1900s, so like 19. 10, 12, 14, somewhere in there, he was writing in a very free atonal way with no restrictions. 12-tone composition technique has a lot of rules, and before he came up with that, expressionist uh, uh, music is as free as you can really imagine. And there's a style of singing that's associated with expressionist music called speech song. That's the English oh. translation of it. It could be Sprechstimme, okay. speech song. And it's very weird. It's definitely an interesting sound and very untonal. <laughs> okay. And the game itself is what we would call a puzzle game. So your objective as a gamer is to perhaps get from point A to point B 
through a series of mind-bending puzzles of some sort. You know, you need to figure out a pattern, you need to figure out a sequence, you need to figure out what order to pull things or whatever the puzzle might be. And you play as a bug. So this is bugs going through environments. So with that Interesting. In mind, okay. let's listen to a little bit of music. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Gary co-composed this. So Gary was ha- handling some music and another friend of mine, uh, a Polish composer named Mikolaj Strowinski, who's an absolute genius in and of himself. Uh, Mikolaj has spent time living here in California, but for all intents and purposes, he's Polish. And Mikolaj also wrote some music for this game. The game is called Metamorphosis, but here's some of Gary's music for, uh, for that game. favorite things too about this is that Gary has posted the score from this so you can watch the score and you can see how the instruments are interacting and what the vocal part looks like because it's unique okay example of Gary's newest video game score and we'll listen to a little more of Bioshock Infinite here in just a minute. Shit, it's mousy. <laughs> now it's finally like maybe it's my palate just kind of I took a big swig and spit it out and I was like wow. I don't know if it's that it doesn't have enough acid the grape itself and she didn't add I think it's a female winemaker didn't add enough like added no sulfur and then it's just I don't know, man. It's just... I'm perturbed right now. I'll just say that. How about this, though? Let's talk about producers doing awesome things here in yes, California. Yes, please. What's cool about California is, like a lot of places in the world, you've got people that are making weird shit like this, orange wine, things done in Amphora, things done in local redwood vessels, people... There's a Cooper. I was just tasting his wine, this guy who just, like, makes his own vessels or restores his own vessels, and then he's, like, making some wine on the sides. And then you have producers that are... in a, in a, And those producers, I should say, like, making natural wine, like lo-fi, like Onward, you know, skin-fermented skin Malvasia, like Jay Bricks, you know, and they're all... They're all... For all intents and purposes a small amount they're out there whereas then you have other producers that are like more classic in what they're trying to do like Arno Roberts they are up in Hedelsburg and they're natural considered natural but they're making Chardonnay from a few different vineyards they're making Trousseau Noir and it tastes like Trousseau Noir you know you could you're gonna have no problem blind tasting them and telling us what grape they are. They're Syrah, they're Cabernet. Maitre de Caille does, you know, Sauvignon Blanc, and I think they do a Cabernet too. And they're very like of a, of a place, which is, and, and of a grape, which is fun. But then you have producers like 
Brock Sellers, who's kind of doing a little bit of everything. You know, he's got all kinds of weird projects, and then he's got this, like, fruity, easy-drinking Sangiovese. There's a producer out of Orinda, which is very close to Berkeley, called Laloon. And Laloon does Sinfandel and Pinot Noir, that you'd be like, wow, these are such heartfelt, but very California-balanced varietals. But then he also has, his name is Shant, he's got a business partner as well that helps him make wine and do all the things... Shant does populace, and populace is like field blend this and field blend that and weird, awesome rosé that's like definitely not provincial style rosé, you know, like light and cheap and cheerful. I don't know, so the, the mishmash right now that is California fascinates me. I, I know that they argue that there is terroir here, and I agree, but I still think terroir is something you need hundreds of years to decide what goes best, what is grown best where, sure. and what... You know, what is Santa Inez known for? I don't know, because everything I taste from there tastes a little bit different, right? But people from California would think differently, I, I imagine. Perhaps, yeah. But um, I don't know, it's just a, it's going to be, it is going to be, and it has been a really fun place for me to explore both, like, on foot, on the ground, but also um, just tasting things back in, in Minneapolis. So I'm excited to be here. The adversity and resilience here is amazing, and yeah. that's, that's all I got. California is an amazing place full of amazing composers. I have a lot of friends here who compose for media and they're all fantastic. Gary and I, I think, have a pretty special connection just because of his love for classical world and uh, being classically trained. And not that there aren't other composers like that, there there certainly are, but he's just proven to be a really good friend and um, I, we love talking about music together and classical music and I've just really valued all the music he writes is is really incredible to me so should we end on uh, one of my favorite pieces from Bioshock Infinite? Let's do it. I do want to throw in one more example of Gary's brilliance by playing something called combat music from Bioshock Infinite. Combat music is music that a player hears while they're actively in combat. Whatever that means in that game, it could be some kind of gun battle, it could be some kind of sword fight, magic, some kind of combat. you and I I just want to make sure p- people that are listening that don't know about much about video game composition um, know and I was surprised as we were preparing for this episode I asked you is this something that people have concerts like you know I hear this and I'm like would I, could I hear this live or like and you said yes Absolutely. like there are tours that go all over the world to do this and I had oh, no yeah. idea yeah I mean there you there are conventions 
all around the world, of course, video game conventions, but now where or- orchestras specifically are assembled or, or whatnot for to do concerts of game music. And Gary has taken part in these. A, a number of composers have taken part in this. And so they'll do what we talked about before. Well, they'll, they'll take the music and make a suite from it so that it's appropriate for orchestra. The, the thing that's... There are so many things I could tell you about the process of video game composition, but it's almost as complicated as making wine because what you're hearing right now is not how the music is really heard in the game. They have to, after it's set for the game, they have to recreate it basically to put it on a soundtrack because music in video games, especially now, is highly interactive and dependent on what the player is doing at any given time. So let's say you enter a combat area but then decide to leave quickly, the music is gonna adapt for that. So if you enter into combat and you're like, wait, I wanna run away, the combat music is gonna fade out and the ambient music or whatever is there for your travel. I got got the 1990s or 80s equivalent. Yeah, so as the environment changes, the music changes. And it's, of course, not that rudimentary. Yeah. No diss against that, because what they did then was genius. For sure, I know what you mean, though. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's incredibly complex to the point of where when Gary is, let's say he's finished that piece of music and he's sending it to the developer, the video game developer to put it into the game, he's sending it to them in pieces. So he's sending them the percussion. He's sending them the strings. Maybe the low strings, the high strings, the brass, whatever. So he's sending it to them in pieces so that those pieces can layer on top of each other to build intensity. So what he's sending them is not what we hear on the soundtrack ever. Like, that's just how it is. It's insane. Yeah, it's really amazing, amazing process. And I'm so grateful Gary is a part of it because I think he's a genius. (laughs) The scores and pours. With our, we will not clink our glasses of water because that's bad luck, but um, we'll raise a glass because our wine is now in a way that we both don't want to drink it. So, the scores and pours. The scores and pours. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links to merchandise, a wine list, a playlist, and support us financially at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. Yeah, this ain't free to produce people, especially coming here to Cali to record some episodes. What's up? We are on Instagram at scoresandpours, and there you can also um, you know, check out what we're up to, but also uh, check out, you can send us a direct message with any questions or show ideas things like that consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music edited by emily reese and joe mott our producer is sam keenan scores and pours is a production of june media inc Ciao. Ciao.